Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. For years, politicians from both major parties have derided people smugglers as pariahs who opportunistically traffic in human misery. We've been told our harsh asylum seeker policies are justified to break their business models and prevent deaths at sea. But beyond the rhetoric, there has been very little interrogation of who people smugglers smugglers actually are and their role in the history of human migration. A new book takes a unique look at this issue, told through the eyes of refugees who came to Australia over past decades. It's called Smuggled, an Illegal History of Journeys to Australia. Julie Kelman is a co-author of the book. She's also an Associate Professor of History over at Monash University and joins me on the line. Julie, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And so let's start at the, the sort of basics, I suppose. What is a people smuggler? Um, a people For us, a people smuggler was uh, anyone who helped another person, aided them, uh, cross a border in what you might think of as, a, as an unlawful way, but, but really making the point that, you know, that, that the law is not always... So, so when we talk about Nazism, for example, in the Second World War, that the whole moral universe is turned on its head. So you're doing something, you're breaking the law, but that's a, that's a, a law that is, is, is not a moral law. Yeah, and both yourself and your co-author Ruth Ballant have family who came to Australia as refugees. How how was your understanding of people smugglers and I guess their role in in your own family's journey compared with the narrative we so often have heard trotted out by politicians? That that was that's a great question. Thank you. And one of the things that we wanted to do with this book was actually, um, as you were saying in your introduction, you know, give it people smuggler a human face and find out what those stories are behind those those tales of smuggling because the people smuggler has become one of the great bogeymen of the western world we we immediately think of a kind of mafia type completely unscrupulous preying on vulnerable people we're actually what what the history tells us and what the human stories tell us is that there's a whole spectrum of motivations and we find people smugglers who were risking their life to help other people. Yeah. Uh, so certainly, you know, it's the, the the truth is much more complicated and much more interesting than the border politics would tell us. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and what really struck me reading the book is is how it's you know become more common in Australia to hear about refugees' journeys. We've had remarkable books like Baru's Buchani's No Friends But the Mountains and and others yeah. as well. But it's it's much less common to hear about the people actually involved in sort of helping them along along the journey and allowing for their passage itself. Why is that? I mean, is it because these people tend to sort of operate in in what's a clandestine injury and and don't necessarily you know want their stories widely known? Well, that's another great question. It's really interesting, in fact, that, um, you know, we've got lots and lots of histories of migrants, but those migrant histories always start, in a way, at the point of arrival. Mm. And we we noted in the introduction to the book that actually you almost never get the history of the actual journey. Um, and, and we don't know why that is, and it could be that um, what's seen as relevant for a migrant is the story of how they adapt and how they become 
uh, Australian, for example, in, you know, in their new country, um, and that the world they leave behind is, is truly a left-behind world. Um, it could be also, as you say, that we don't see the face of the people smuggler. Yeah. And tell us about how you went about putting this book together. Well, we, um, I, I watched a, a documentary um, that Les Murray had made, um, and that was my eureka moment. So I saw that in 2017. It was screened on Dateline on SBS, um, and it was an old... It was a documentary from 2014 um, where he had gone back to Hungary, which was where he was originally from, to try and find the person who had helped his family across the border from Hungary in 1956 into Austria. Uh, and, and he was making a political statement because he was really upset by the rhetoric around people smuggling that, that was really prevalent at that time. Um, when I saw that, and, and knowing my own family history, it occurred to me, of course, there's a story here. So we sent out calls. Um, we, we drew on all our networks. We wrote to people that we knew in the, in the community had... Uh, come to Australia using people smugglers and we gradually basically put together this network of, of really extraordinary people who were more than prepared to share their story with us. Yeah, and there's, you know, really fascinating and, and you know, quite inspiring group of people who, whose stories are yeah. told throughout this book. Um, tell us about, I mean, I mean, obviously each of them has their own unique story and their own unique journey, but, but there seem to be some kind of elements to the, the smuggling process that perhaps aren't so widely known. For instance, the, the fact that there's not sort of a single smuggler, that it's a, a complex network, and, and also, you know, the role of um, often politicians and high-ranking police officers as well in that process too. So it's not just that there's sort of one one person, one one people smuggler, which is often the, the impression you might get from some of the political rhetoric. Yes, that's true. And we took a we took a sort of broad understanding of people smuggling, as you, as you suggested in the chapter on Sylvie and the, the one on Amin, where actually because people smugglers often diversify, and they'll smuggle people, but they'll also smuggle goods. Uh, and so we wanted to get that sense of really the, what we think of as the illegal ways that people have crossed borders or, or got themselves into out of out of danger into safety, uh, and. We did, we did find that actually, again, you know, this is a, a much more complex story. It's been oversimplified for the purposes of, of the politics of border protection. Um, on the other hand, it has to be said that people smuggling is an is a extraordinary, it's a massive industry. Um, in 2016, um, it was up in the billions mm. and it was as big as... The, the money made by people smuggling that this is the, this is what's um, basically understood is is was as much as the US or the EU spent on their humanitarian programs. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we don't we don't want to say that this, 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 this there aren't unscrupulous people preying on other people who are vulnerable. We just want to say that this is more complicated. 
than the politics tells us. That's right, because I think, you know, for those who might hear some of that rhetoric, that the really, you know, nasty rhetoric, and we can think about, you know, Kevin Rudd, for example, referring to people smugglers as, as scum of the earth and vile. And, yep. um, you know, that, that might seem sort of a bit, a bit full on and, and unnecessarily, you know, nasty to, to people. But then the flip side of that is to, to suggest that all of them are necessarily driven by humanitarian concerns. I think it's, it's sort of really interesting to look at this as, as an economy. And um, in terms of, you know, people who um, don't necessarily make much money at all, but, but, a, but a part of this broader process and this broader network and operating in often informal industries as well, where they might not have many opportunities themselves to find work and so on. Yes. Um, my co-author, Ruth Ballant, has actually written about uh, Indonesian fishermen who um, a lot of them are the ones who end up in Australian jails for people smuggling, um, who have found themselves basically pushed out of the fishing market and who have turned to people smuggling in order to feed wives and children, for example. And, and these, she, she called her article Small Fry, and these are the small fry, but you do find that there, at times this is simply an economic imperative. Mm. Absolutely. Speaking with Julie Kalman, Associate Professor of History over at Monash University and also co-author with Ruth Balance of a book called um, Smuggled, Smuggled, An Illegal History of Journeys to Australia, which was out recently. And, I mean, this idea of the people smuggler as, you know, to use, paraphrase Kevin Rudd, scum of the earth and, and vile, those sort of nasty tropes, is that a relatively recent phenomenon? Yeah, we see this really, um, the official appearance of this kind of people smuggler um, appeared in Australia, certainly, um, in the late 90s. And, of course, it peaked in the early 2000s. And and we've just had the 20th anniversary of the uh, Tampa. Um, and, And this is where it really reaches its peak. One of the things that frustrated Ruth and I as historians is that we find that the people smuggler is always spoken about as though this is a a phenomenon that has just materialised. And certainly it's it's, it's been used to serve the, the border policies of Australia in the last 20 years. So, so yes, that, kind, that idea of the kind of unscrupulous sociopath, fat cat, people smuggler is one that has a relatively recent appearance, in, certainly in Australian political rhetoric. Yeah, and, and I wonder if, if you think that it all serves to absolve Australia of, of responsibilities in relation to broader sort of global migration flows as well because I mean we've just withdrawn from a 20 year war in Afghanistan and, and I mean at least part of the justif- justification for that was to to battle evil um, you, know, our, you know our humanitarian intake through that really messy um, process of exiting um, was sort of lowered we, we didn't sort of announce any sort of permanent increase to that at all does does the, the casting out of the, of the people smuggler as, as evil and, and and vile kind of mean that we don't necessarily have or, or suggest that we don't have responsibilities to those who are part of some of these migration flows that, you know, very much implicated in um, the wars and, and efforts Australia has been engaged in overseas? Well, well what it does is it, it um, diverts tension mm. uh, away from Australia's, Australia's migration um, policies, policies and programs to um, place fault with the people smugglers. So you get, you know, the, the Home Affairs Minister, Susan Andrews, saying something like, um, with the, the, in, in regard with, to the Murugapan family, the, 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 the Biloela family, who is so much in the press at the moment, she says, I'm not going to have people dying trying to come to Australia by sea on my watch. 
I'm not going to open the gates to the people smugglers. So, so all attention is diverted to the people smuggler. And what happens is that, that the, the idea of the refugee is aligned with illegality. The, the smuggling is illegal, therefore the refugee who uses a people smuggler comes illegally. And that, that was hence our title. We wanted to draw attention to the way the, um, this, this kind of activity has been illegalised, if you like. Yeah. And from speaking to, to people who had made journeys to Australia, what sort of sense did you get in terms of their relationship with those who had, had, had helped them or, or allowed for their passage? This is, I mean, this is one of the things we wanted to do with the book. As, as you were saying, we really wanted to give it a human face. Mm. We wanted to explore the choices um, that, that people made. Why, why go with a people smuggler? Um, and what we found was, you know, it, it, it ranges from... So, so Tauzin's story of, of the, the terrible boat trip, um, so the sense that they really did deal with someone unscrupulous to um, the stories from Vietnam where the, the people smuggler is a, is a beloved family member. Mm. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of choice and an idea of necessity um, you know, that idea that people don't put their children in a boat unless it's safer than being on land. Um, and here is the person, the people smuggler, who simply helps to facilitate that. They have to get away, and the people smuggler is the person who gets them away. Yeah, and I mean your your book, I suppose, is one corrective to those um, very uh, you know one dimensional or, or misleading portraits we've we've had of people smugglers um, across our media landscape, and and often that uh, you know spoken by our political class as well. Are there any other kind of um, you know things that could be done to to reorient this kind of narrative and and as you say, give a human face to, to people smugglers um, as a way as well of of challenging some of the the you know at times xenophobic rhetoric that accompanies asylum seeker policies and the like? Uh, well, there's that wonderful book by Robin de Crespigny, um, The People Smuggler. Mm. Um, she tells a story of a fellow called Ali Ali Janabi. Um, and, and I think that, that um, stories such as that where we actually, that the people smuggler speaks, you know, that, that is terribly important. And um, really what what's, was so striking and so humbling about the people that we spoke to was they all said these, these were painful stories to relive, terrible stories to have to retell, but they all said this, this has to be told, this story has to be told. And I think that telling stories, you know, and, and I guess that's why I'm a historian, but <laughs> the telling of stories, the humanising of these stories, the bringing to light of, of people who are well-known in Australian society who stand up and say, yep, um, I got here because a people smuggler helped me, um, is a way of really just bringing, complicating, bringing these ideas to light and in a way sort of normalising them. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, you, your book absolutely does that. It's a, it's a fascinating read. Um, really appreciate you spending some time with us on Triple R this morning. Thanks so much. Oh, very happy to have a chat. Thank you. And that's uh, Julie Kelman, Associate Professor of History over at Monash University and co-author of a book called Smuggled, An Illegal History of Journeys to Australia. That's um, out through New South Books. And um, as I said, Julie, a co-author along with Ruth Balance. And um, yeah, really, really nice and, and uh, engaging read. Well worth getting your hands on. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Last week, it emerged that Facebook has refused to enter a commercial agreement with both SBS and The Conversation under the News Media Bargaining Code, which was legislated just over six months ago. This comes after agreements were reached with a host of other news media organisations, including News Corp, Nine, Seven West Media, Guardian Australia and others, who will each be compensated for the use of their content. Facebook has said it's within its rights to decide who is eligible for commercial deals under the code, but others argue this sets a worrying precedent for the kinds of news media organisations who will benefit from these arrangements going forward. Lizzie O'Shea is a lawyer, author and chair of Digital Rights Watch. She's spoken regularly about these issues and joins me today on the line. Lizzie, great to have you back on Triple R. Thanks so much for having me. And so the news media bargaining code was sort of always framed by the government in terms of its ability to put money back into the hands of Australian news media organisations. You've long raised concerns about the potential for particular organisations, um, especially small media organisations, to be left behind. Does this news surprise you at all? Unfortunately, it doesn't. I mean, what the News Media Bargaining Code does is it sets up a relatively complicated legislative regime to force uh, digital platforms like Facebook and Google to negotiate with news media organisations for payments for content. So you have to be designated as a platform to be compelled to negotiate with these news organisations and neither platform has been designated. So at the moment, it's operating on a disincentive. So the government may designate Facebook if it doesn't negotiate with news organisations but hasn't yet. So it comes sort of as no surprise to me that Facebook and Google would do deals with the largest community commercial media organisations and leave some of the smaller ones out in the cold. Uh, there's another component to this, of course, which is lots of independent and investigative journalists who have built an audience online. They're largely excluded from the code anyway because they're too small or they maybe have an audience that's not just Australian, for example. So they're left out of the drafting full stop. But it's pretty troubling to me that two organisations that are pre- pretty reputable, SBS and The Conversation, which contribute to a diverse media landscape, have been left out by Facebook. Yeah, and uh, I mean, what's your sense of this? Because, I mean, the Conversations Chief Executive, Lisa Watts, has has argued that Facebook is is essentially betting that it can avoid um, uh, having to pay these organisations because it has entered agreements with others, so therefore sort of they they won't be designated by the government. Is it just trying to sort of get away with with the least um, layout of money? Uh, I think that's Facebook's business model to get out, out of any kind of negotiation with the least payment of money. Absolutely. I think partly this whole media code was drafted with the uh, interests of major commercial media organisations in mind rather than uh, necessarily the objective of building a diverse media landscape. Uh, it's You know, these commercial organisations have penned deals worth millions of dollars. I mean, there's a whole other issue to this, which is what that essentially does is aligns the commercial media organisation's objectives and business model with that of Facebook and Google. So now content that they produce that does well on those platforms will be rewarded in further money flowing to those organisations. So that's a whole deterioration of quality journalism, which I think we should be concerned about. But 
you know, the whole model of this code was really uh, about enabling and uh, giving revenue to those large commercial media organisations, focusing on building thriving commercial media organisations rather than a diverse media landscape. So it's no surprise to me when that's been the objective of the legislation. And, of course, one of the big... um, success stories out of this media code, if you could describe it in that way, has been Murdoch News Organisations and in Mm. particular Sky, who does really well uh, using these platforms as a default distribution model. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the government has said, and, and you know, still in, in the documentation around the News Media Bargaining Code, that, that a big reason for its development was to sustain public interest journalism. But we've essentially got the size of the outlet determining whether or not they're necessarily compensated for their content at all. And we know that, you know, certain sectors of, of mainstream media very much produce journalism that you could argue is very much not in the public interest. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think it's a really important point. Like, if we're looking at this problem for what what's going on in the media and how do we need to fix it, I think what you'd say is regional and rural journalism has suffered as a result of the digital revolution and the contraction of news organisations, but also quality investigative journalism that takes time and money to produce. Uh, and, in fact, there's no requirement, or none of this has come really out of the coach, no requirement this money is spent on in those two places at all. And, in fact, now there's an incentive to produce more clickbaity kind of content that's perfectly optimised for these news platforms, for these, for these um, digital platforms, rather than producing that kind of content. So I think it is really troubling. You know, the, the reality is we should, I think, be investing in the public broadcast or other initiatives in regional rural areas. But actually, what's recently been announced is that Sky News is, is opening up a regional service. Mm. So we can expect Sky to be delivered into the homes of regional uh, Australians rather than quality news journalism. And that occurred, that announcement occurred on around the same time that Sky's YouTube channel was suspended for distributing misinformation about COVID-19. And so, you know, in terms of building a, a media landscape that can produce quality content, I think what this media code has done is incentivize the opposite. Low-quality, clickbaity journalism now being delivered to more and more Australians and Murdoch doing very well out of this and, and lots of other commercial news outlets as well, uh, which really um, poses, I think, a real threat to the fourth estate as an institution um, as, that holds up a liberal democracy. And people would, would remember that the government and Facebook were, were involved in a pretty heady stoush that led to Facebook temporarily suspending news on Australian news on its platform for a time and and we you know we saw certain sectors of the media the Murdoch um, organizations talking it up as sort of you know Australian government one Facebook zero when they eventually got them to to agree to, to the code itself do you imagine there would be any pressure for the government to um, kind of force Facebook to engage with the likes of SBS and the conversation to, to agree to, to some level of compensation for, for their content? Yeah, I think that's a very insightful question, actually, because what occurred when Facebook stripped news off the content, off, off their um, their website, news content off their website, uh, and including Digital Rights Watch, an organisation that was campaigning against the news media bargaining code, so we also suffered, and I think what Facebook did was absolutely disgraceful, mm. given it was during a time in which vaccine rollout was occurring. Um, I think the reality is what happened in that stash was that Facebook was successful. What they managed to negotiate was more notice in order to um, deal with the potential threat 
threat of designation. So I think if the government really wants Facebook to negotiate with the conversation in the SBA and SBS, it will need to designate the platform. What Facebook negotiated in the course of that ban uh, was more time to be able to accommodate that and greater flexibility uh, for you know the relevant authority to consider whether they've carefully bargained with news organisations. So they've given themselves more room to negotiate. That can mean that if Facebook gets designated, it may elect to again strip news off the platform. It may also be in a better position to argue, well, it's done its job. It's negotiated to pay a bunch of news organisations. It doesn't really matter now whether it doesn't pay the Facebook and uh, it doesn't pay the SBS in the conversation. It satisfied the relevant requirements. So I think Facebook did quite well out of that particular stash and it puts it in a much stronger bargaining position now should the government try to address this very serious problem. Speaking with lawyer, author and chair of Digital Rights Watch, Lizzie O'Shea, all about the Australian News Media Bargaining Code and in particular news that emerged last week that Facebook has refused to enter a commercial agreement with both the SBS and the conversation. Um, and so we'll kind of you know wait and see what happens from this point forward. Uh, it's interesting to hear about you talk about the potential implications for, for journalism going forward and the kind of journalism that's rewarded through these platforms. I suppose more broadly speaking, given that a number of news media organisations have benefited, benefited from this and have had you know some income generated through the deals they've brokered with, with Facebook and Google, do you think that has influenced the level of, of kind of critical coverage of the news media bargaining code itself? <laughs> Completely. I mean, it felt it felt like a pretty lonely experience being um, <laughs> the small number of people arguing against this. You've got, you know, major tech companies now aligned in their mission and their business model of surveillance capitalism with major media organisations. Now, there are some exceptions. You know, The Guardian did say that it was very concerned about this and saw this as the first step but not the end of the road when it comes to um, rehabilitating the media and, and, and returning it to viability. So there's some exceptions. But for the most part, I feel like the coverage of this has been pretty dismal. Um, you know, the, the, in part, I think these things are related. If you look at the most popular link on Facebook in 2021, this was released in a report by Facebook, it's essentially a news article produced by a reputable media organisation, the Chicago Tribune, about that, that claimed that a doctor died after receiving the vaccine with no evidence. That was repurposed by the Daily Mail, turned into a clickbaity headline, it became extremely popular. This is now the journalism that we can expect, given that there's an alignment between news media organisations and major tech platforms. It's exactly the kind of journalist content that's optimised for this platform. And there's no real space then to criticise the business models that drive this, and that should be a cause for immense, of immense concern for many people who are interested in quality news journalism creating a fairer democratic society. Yeah, interesting too, given that, I mean, if we're talking about the conversation, they've got a, a particular model where academics write articles, um, you know, on, on a particular issue, their issue of expertise that's sort of very easily digestible. But, but in some ways, that's the very kind of content you could say we need more of, where, you know, it's, it's a kind of a bulwark against misinformation information which we know really thrives in the online space. Yeah, completely. And and this is not just even just about money. As these platforms develop um, products that are specifically designed to give people access to news, like a news showcase or whatever, who gets platformed in those news showcases, it's pretty important because people will seek to rely on that over time, directly, indirectly, intentionally or otherwise, as their key source of news. So if you're excluded from that and you're providing quality output that really does illuminate the public debate, that's not based on um, extremism or outrage or just pure engagement that actually is based on quality expertise and insight, then 
being excluded from that platform is hugely troubling. The other one that comes to mind, of course, is that um, plenty of, as we move into an age of climate catastrophe, there's going to be plenty of disinformation about um, the role of various industries in climate change, what we need to do to address it. And there's a really telling story by Ken Joshi, who's a journalist in the space online, about how uh, news about, um, about disinformation, essentially about climate change, about German solar power, became a top-ranking story. And it was produced by none other than Sky News. Mm. So now we will have Sky News appearing in these news showcases, publishing disinformation about COVID, disinformation about climate change. And, you know, the outlet that Joshi works for, um, which is called Renew Economy, that's excluded from the new media bargaining code. So they won't be permitted, or they certainly haven't done a deal, they won't be permitted to participate necessarily in some of these news products. And, you know, large media organisations that peddle disinformation will be. That's a very troubling problem. Yeah, and we actually spoke to editor of Renew Economy, Giles Parkinson, some time ago about his experience trying to, to sort of get Renew Economy on Google News Showcase and, and obviously failing to do so, which is pretty alarming. Um, yeah. al- alongside this, I suppose, we've got Facebook and Google investing in things that appear to support journalism. So there's things like the the news um, Google partnering with News Corp to learn, launch a journalism academy, which you wrote about in a recent article for Overland. Um, there's also mm. uh, research projects to address misinformation that, that Facebook has been part of as well. How do you view these kinds of initiatives in light of the potential for the news media bar and encode to itself encourage clickbait journalism and those problems around misinformation that that you've just outlined? Yeah, that academy is so interesting because if you read about it, it talks about teaching journalists about the commercial realities as a a new media environment, but also about digital marketing and monetization of content, in essence. And so what we're seeing, therefore, is a pretty uh, blurring of the distinction of church and state that's traditionally existed in media between advertisers and journalism. And in fact, here's a bunch of media organisations throwing in their lot with the biggest advertising um, companies of our time, Google and Facebook. So I, I do think that this is a new dynamic that hasn't been traditionally such a problem in these media that they've created for themselves. And I really hope that we start to talk about this distinction and the need for quality journalism to be separate from advertising revenue uh, in order to allow people to get access to good information. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a bad sign when, when news organisations have elected not to try and beat advertisers in their own game, but in fact join them, um, and that's, that's not good for us as citizens. Absolutely, and all the more important to have you know voices like yours and an independent media organisation speaking up about these issues. Six months into the media, like triple R, Dylan. Absolutely, and and, and like us, we've, we've been banging on about it for, for a while, at least on this show. But yeah, totally. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, we're six months into to this new media uh, news media bargaining code being in place. Where do you see it going into the future? Given these sorts of issues we've just seen over the past week, with uh, you know some media organisations, quite large media organisations being excluded. Yeah, well, what I would like to see is uh, the media industry talk more about this topic and show some solidarity with their colleagues in other organisations to start agitating against this kind of exclusion of key news outlets um, so that they can be uh, given revenue under this model. I mean, I I think we need to reform it. I think there's lots of different proposals on the table, including, you know, obviously funding the ABC and allowing the ABC to do more work in regional rural areas and also just facilitate... um, 
you know, a public version of the social infrastructure we rely on to get news and have discussions um, that isn't subject to their business model of surveillance capitalism. I mean, Digital Rights Watch is also running a whole project on looking at what content creators and activists and community builders need to rebalance the internet economy in that favour, and you can read more about that on our website. So we're listening to content creators and trying to get their voice heard. I mean, I think there's lots of other things we could do. Have a future fund for journalism that funds journalists in the early stages of their career or or even in the mid-stages to do more investigative work. We need to introduce those kinds of policy reforms to address the horrible uh, dynamics that have been created by the New Media Bargaining Code. And if we don't, then I think we can expect a deterioration of the fourth estate uh, and, you know, the foundations for some very nasty politics coming out of that. Yeah, well, interesting times ahead. It's um, always great to have you on Triple R, Lizzie. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Dylan. I really appreciate you covering this issue. No worries. We we will continue to do so. (laughs) Um, Lizzie O'Shea, the (laughs) lawyer, author and chair of Digital Rights Watch, talking about the news media bargaining code. Um, As you just heard, it's been in place for around about six months, um, but but specifically this this week talking about it in light of Facebook refusing to enter a commercial agreement with both the SBS, with both SBS and the conversation. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And this week, some restrictions are moderately easing across Victoria as we edge towards vaccination targets outlined in the government's roadmap. It appears, though, that it's still going to be some time before our music and art sectors are properly back up and running. And we know that the creative industries were some of the first to be impacted by lockdowns, but it seems as though they may be one of the last to get back. And while it's, of course, important that we're led by public health advice in any return to live music and entertainment, there are calls for more to be done to get people back to work in these sectors. One of those voices is musician Claire Bowditch. She delivered an impassioned National Press Club address on this issue last month and once again has taken to Instagram to shine a light on this issue. And uh, very pleased to have Claire joining me on the line. Thanks for coming on Triple R. A pleasure. Good to be with you. And so, I mean, we've got a plan now out of lockdown in Victoria, and it seems there's more clarity around when we can open up um, across a range of kind of places and and sectors and so on. What are you concerned about in relation to what the roadmap spells out or or doesn't spell out for the creative industries? As mentioned um, in your intro, Dylan, the reality is that we were the creative industries, and that's I'm including in that our live performing arts scene, our venue, our venue owners, um, our crew, people who work in Australian music and the creative industries more broadly. We were the first to be impacted back in March with our shows cancelled and our work cancelled and the loss of our jobs. We are now more than 18 months along the road and we still have so little clarity about how the hell we move forward. So, you know, what, how we move forward as people who support and people who enjoy the creativity of Australians. There's been so little focus and discussion and inclusion of the creative industries in both the national and uh, more recently in the local conversation about how we how the hell we get back to being in rooms together when we want to make music. So if we look, for example, at the moment we've got the 5th of November, the 80% of 16 plus fully vaccinated. That gives us the possibility of, of one person per, per four square metres. That's 150 people in a venue. Um, they'll be seated, no doubt. The consideration needs to be 
how can we actually be realistic about applying the same um, conversation and allocations that we have applied to sport, which is so necessary, also to the creative industries? We also have no idea how we support our creative sector during this time. You know, we're basically being told you're not going to be able to go back to work for a long time, guys. Sorry, it's going to be 2022. Mm. So what then are we doing to support those people who have lost their job and have no other form of income? Yeah, and, and it seems like we were having these kinds of conversations when we weren't sort of in, in proper lockdown, when, you know, we could go along Correct. to the MCG to see, you know, the footy and that sort of thing. And, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, musicians and, and particularly venue bookers and, and so on were, were pointing out that still, the, you know, the caps on, on uh, capacity were really impinging on their ability to actually stage shows, even though we could have more people at some of these other events. And, and I mean, why is it, do you think, that there has been an emphasis on, on you know, getting back people back into sport and we know that you know sports are really important and much loved thing for, for a lot of people but but not so much um when it comes to to music and, and other creative industries you know in a way that is actually safe it's mysterious to me Dylan. very very mysterious but i think what we always do is follow capital you know where is it where is money being made and for some reason you know the, the particularly the Victorian music industry, we have been fiercely independent our whole history. You know, we have not asked, we have not been at the government team. We are our small business owners, family business owners, and we make our living independently. So I don't know if it's just that we've never been able to or, you know, establish a, the um, paths to have these conversations at high levels, which is happening. There's so much conversation happening behind the scenes, but it's so deeply confusing, this mixed message that, oh, we are the cultural capital of Australia and live music is so important to us, and yet there's been no focus or conversation about how the heck we bring that back. Even just artists trying to get into studios to work together, you know, it's very difficult to have that conversation. Venue owners can't expect to keep venues open at these kind of rates, like it's just difficult, and if they do, they certainly won't be doing it with live music there because they can't make any money out of it. So that's very, very distressing for so many people. What I would say at this stage is we need far more confidence to be uh, instilled in us by our government. We need far clearer support packages for our sector. You know, whether that is uh, a series of specific grants for venue owners and gigs that that are easy to access so that the venue owners can put on live music and make a profit and pay their pay their um, staff and musicians can still play you know but we need some kind of literally we we need a really detailed and generous um, conversation about how we acknowledge the deep suffering and the fact that this sector the creative sector will be the last one out what do we do there you know so that is what we are not hearing yeah, and as you say, I mean, there, there are so many different, you know, kinds of people involved and, and employed in the creative sector, from from roadies to, to venue bookers to musicians Correct. and performers themselves, and so um, the best and people in the, in the world, that, you know, best people in the world who aren't out there protesting and complaining like bloody idiots, you know, they are just desperate for it to be acknowledged. In and this is not, there's no pleading going on. It's just a simple equation. If you do not support your creative sector 
vigorously and fiercely in this moment in time with stuffed. Mm. And, and I mean, there have, of course, you know, been um, different allocations of, of funding to the creative industries. There was, I think, over $220 million in, in the federal budget and, and some grants as well uh, in, in the Victorian context. But is your sense yep. that that money hasn't necessarily, um, you know, dealt with the, the magnitude of, of the problem or got into the, well, the we, pockets of those were... people who need it? Yeah, so what you'll see is the vast majority of that money is going to organisations who are already, um, you know, organisations who know how to ask for vast sums of money already. They've Mm. already been in the grants game for a long time. They've got the language around it. They know exactly what it is. It is, uh, and that sector is suffering too, but they are better at playing the game of getting money into their organisation. And it's not, you know, I call it a game. It's really, it is a a series of technical skills that they have built up over the years. I'll talk specifically to the music sector. We're not like that. You know, we haven't had to do that um, because we have been fiercely independent. We've made our own money out of our own gigs, out of our own work. Um, And the problem is you have a a cohort of people who have depended on touring and a a whole ecosystem of of venues and crew who have depended on touring. Who Who is looking to that crew? You know, who is looking to that individual artist? It is... There has been some wonderful general um, support of people who have lost employment throughout throughout this period of COVID. But if you're not, for example, registered as a sole trader, it's very difficult to mm. get, you know, the settings aren't right so that my mate Morrow, sound guy, can, can um, get support during this time, uh, for example, you know. And, like, there's deep concern about the individual human beings who have dedicated their life to creating music for Australians and now find themselves in a position where they are forgotten. It's said again and again and again, the music industry has always been the first to show up when Australia is in need. Mm. At this moment in time, we need far more targeted and specific packages for individuals. We're speaking with Claire Bodich, a musician, of course, um, all about the need to, to provide better support for the creative industries. That includes music and, and all various types of performance to come back in line with the national plan and, and also in, in this context, I suppose, Victoria's roadmap out of lockdown. And what struck me over the past 18 months or so, and we've had a lot of these conversations on the show, was mm. the, the solidarity among, I mean, particularly we've spoken to musicians and, and those in, in the music industry, but to mm-hmm. try to rally for more support and there's things like the you know the save our scene campaign there's the soundtrack our stories project that a whole bunch of organizations got behind to encourage businesses to play more australian music there's the you know the the vaccination campaign as well that that people in the music sector are are getting behind to enable as many people as possible to be vaccinated so that we can get back to having live performance and so on i mean so there's there's kind of things happening and there's there's a sense that that the music community particularly has come together and, and rallied to try to raise some of these issues. Um, do you expect that we will have more clarity on, on you know, reopening and getting back in, in, into those venues sort of sooner rather than later or, or that we might not sort of know what things look like for some time to come? Look, I, I know that there are so many good people, clever people, passionate people working behind the scenes. There are so many organisations that represent uh, the diversity of the Australian music scene and that's a gorgeous thing but it also has a deficit at this point in time which is that we haven't been able to have that clear centralised conversation that many other sectors have in order to access uh, 
money in a clear um, money funding support in a clear way. So we've had a lot of good support for, for example, Support Act. There is an understanding that the mental health impacts of this are huge. Mm. Will we get more clarity? Well, I don't know. I mean, I bloody hope so. I really hope so. We can see if we look again to Victoria's roadmap for sports and recreation, there's far more clarity there than there is for our conversation around the arts and around live music. We have a cohort of venue owners who are the most rebellious and wonderful people uh, who have been willing and vocally willing for over a year to, uh, you know, preemptively trial the QR codes to be compliant in any way that they can in order to satisfy the needs of what's going on. Double-vaxxed people in venues who at a certain point when we're at a a level of protection... um, uh, you know, in in our state that we feel good about, we have to consider then that um, human beings are, are able to choose whether or not they go into a venue and see a live show. Um, if we keep the cap at 150 uh, for the rest of this year and we don't progress quickly um, into next year, we're in trouble. Mm. Yeah, and we I imagine we do need more clarity. And, and it's about planning as well, isn't it? Because without that that clarity, that if you know if the certain settings are in place in terms of vaccination targets being met, and and even you know knowing that there might be a trigger clause for if if we do have have lockdowns going forward and so on, that at least mm. that provides some sense of all right, this is how we build in a contingency plan if that gig mm-hmm. can't go ahead or if that tour can't happen. We told we're front of mind, but really, are we? You know, so we told always um, as Victorian creatives that we are we are front of mind because the cultural capital of this state is is so central to our sense of who we are. But really and genuinely, um, we need some focus and some clarity for this sector. We are not mentioned in conversations about roadmaps. We mention, you know, as we met, as we said before, sporting venues and hairdressers and all the other important facilities and services that are available. But we need a conversation loud and clear about Victorian music and Victorian creatives and how our federal and state governments are going to support that sector until we are the last to roll out. We have been so happily spreading the message and copying it for spreading the message of, of the importance of vaccination uh that needs to be acknowledged too Mm, absolutely and and, i mean how does it sit with you being a a prominent spokesperson on these issues because you obviously had a really sizable audience through the national press club address and are continuing Mm -hmm. to to raise your concerns and i know there's a lot of support you've received you know on instagram and the like from fellow people who who are involved in the creative industries that are really um you know rallying behind the kinds of things that that you're saying i mean how does it sit with you being a a Mm -hmm. sort of prominent spokesperson on these issues well, look, there are hundreds of us doing this, and mm. I'm always and always have been, you know, very... I, I understand after 20 years of running a small family business that is my music career here in this state, I understand the struggles that small businesses go through in order to get anywhere, and I guess that is stuck in my heart, that memory of that first grant that I got... <clears throat> that helped me make my first album, all the sacrifices you make along the way. I'm getting emotional as I speak about it. And seeing that happen right throughout the sector. Mm. sector. So I'm more than happy to be one of hundreds of voices and use my voice in any way just to keep saying we exist, we matter, we're suffering, and we deserve your support. You know, and we deserve more clarity. We deserve more respect, actually, in this conversation. I think that's the thing that gets me. 
Yeah. There's so little respect of the contribution of creative industries and small businesses and the suffering, the unique suffering that they're under. Yeah. in this set of circumstances. Yeah, well, we're, you know, we're, we're sort of very well aware of this at, at Triple R and we're very keen to sort of keep having these conversations and, and people like you on to, to raise so the right kind of issues. So, um, Look, God bless you. No, you know, like goodness bless you. Really, what would we do without you, Triple R? So thank you for having me and thanks for letting me say what I've said. Cheers, Claire. Really appreciate your time. Lots of love, Dylan. See you soon. Bye, everyone. See ya. Claire Bowditch there talking all about um, the need for more support and and clarity around when our creative industries can be up and running. That's, of course, all, you know, in line with with, uh, the right public health advice. But but I think so many of us now would love to have a bit more of an idea of of, of when those kinds of things can, can come back in Victoria. Um, in order to, to allow us to plan and hopefully get more and more people back into work as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.